Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. In this From the Field episode, Managing Editor Brian Gorman interviews Caroline Samney, co-founder of Pillars, on the importance of taking a different perspective on the role of a change practitioner. We hope you enjoy this installment of the Change Management Review Podcast. Hello, I'm Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review, and my guest today is Caroline Samney, co-founder of The Pillars. The Pillars is a Montreal-based consulting firm specializing in organizational culture and transformation, organizational learning, the development of leadership, and talent management. Caroline is a fluently bilingual change architect and leader of change. She is very passionate about helping leaders develop organizations that know how to thrive through and create change-enabled cultures for ongoing success. A strong believer that people are the key to success in any transformation, she works with teams using systems thinking to develop, guide, and implement strategies that encompass people, process, structure, and culture. Developing and supporting cultures that thrive and embrace change is at the core of Carolyn's passion. Welcome, Carolyn. Thanks, Brian. Really happy to be here today. In an earlier conversation you and I were having, you said it's important to know what you believe as a change practitioner in terms of what is true about change and what is true about your role. Why is that important? Yeah. I'm going to try to answer it in a short uh, synopsis. I come from a background that's very um, based in human motivation, human development, and and, um, the idea that change is really about people, right? So when you think about who are we as practitioners, I think it's a question that is often not really indulged, just to use that word when we think about what it means to practice change, if you look at what's popularized out there, oftentimes there's a lack of integration of what I call the self in these models of change. It's often very tactically minded and seeks to inform us about the how of of process, of how we should bring change or help an organization to bring change not very much. And I know we talked about this a little bit and you mentioned that Daryl Connor's work also encompassed um, the self, I guess you can say. And that's where I was first, if you will, informed was years ago in the work of Edie and Charles Seashore and around their work around uh, self as an agent of change. And it's the whole notion of conscious and unconscious. So what do you consciously know? And sometimes that is more leaning in the sense of, you know, your skills, your competencies, and so on. But in the unconscious is everything that is to be discovered, right? It's, it's your beliefs, your mindset, uh, your paradigms, and all of that. And that definitely, this is my strong belief, informs how we shape, just to use the word, an intervention, right? So if I'm minded of the belief that change is difficult, and that people will, without a doubt, resist change, I believe that you come into this mandate or or work or whatever you want to term it with a headset around, it's going to be difficult. 
So if it's going to be difficult, we're going to want to design something to try to troubleshoot or to assume that there's going to be roadblocks. And I'm not saying that there won't be, but I think that, again, what we bring as a um, philosophy will color, you know, especially if you believe that people bring us in as the expert or the, the knowing person around change, what we bring to the table informs the strategy. So if we're not aware or we're not consciously exposing our own beliefs, I think we absolutely color how we intervene. And then what we potentially teach, to use that word loosely, the organization around change. And I think we've done a disservice because I am honestly tired of hearing consistently how hard change is and how people just always resist change. And, and we've demonized both change and resistance. I mean, I think we've taken resistance as something that is absolutely negative and needs to be sort of beaten out of people versus resistance as a natural force in systems that is very informative and is not necessarily a negative. So I think we partly have built that as practitioners by the way we come into a project and what we already deem as hard and negative. And, and so that's where I'm thinking there's, there's a paradigm shift, even for us as practitioners, to ask ourselves, why do I believe this? And what is it that I truly believe about change? Is it exciting? Is it hard? That has to lead me to the next question, mm. which is, what do you truly believe about change? Yeah. Well, as a person myself, I love change. So I guess maybe it's partly why I was attracted to, to the profession. And I truly believe that people, teams, systems all have capacity for change. So I really come more of, you know, today's maybe terminology might be a growth mindset and that there is capacity for things to continually evolve. All too often, I bump into people, leaders, teams who will say, oh, you know, well, he, she, they always respond this way or are always the person to be negative or to resist. So we've already sort of determined that people can't change or an organization can't change a pattern or a belief. I don't believe that. I truly believe that it's possible and it's not by dictating it that it's possible. It's by inviting people to find their inner motivation, if you will, because I think we are built contrary to popular belief for change. Otherwise, as humans, we would have never evolved. We'd be still stuck in a version of ourselves from many years ago. And would still be stuck as infants. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that I'm now really spending a lot of time thinking about is how much of our resistance to change, our difficulty in going through change, how much of that is socialized into us? Yes. Because as infants, as young children, change is like a daily exciting event. So how do you work with clients who say, we need you to help us with this difficult and possible mm -hmm. change initiative we've got underway? So an exercise I love to do with people is to help them surface their own beliefs around change. So we do an activity around um, 
naming change. So, you know, we'll do sometimes different activities around if you were to give it a personality or if you were to characterize it, what does change look like, feel like. And so it starts to help you see if people are going more towards the negative or more towards the positive. And then we do a hopes and fears activity where we get people to really be able to speak to what is the hope they have around this change and what is the fear. Then we try to anchor it a little bit deeper in where does that hope come from? And then where does that fear come from? And we try to work through for them. <clears throat> Again, often hopes and fears are both historical. And what I mean by that is just our past lived experience. Well, it happened like this before, so I'm just going to assume it to be this again. So we try to dispel that. We, we try to surface it right from the get-go, especially if they've already built it up as being difficult. So I want to explore with them why they believe it to be difficult. And it, I'm not saying that there's a magic wand and then, you know, just after a couple of conversations, it goes away. But I think it's just a progressive conversation around pushing the why or asking deeper questions. And even around resistance, I will not do any activities around resistance mapping or, but what we will have conversations is what is it that people are afraid of? So again, it, it goes back to the fears, right? And often, you know, the expression I heard years ago, and I don't even know where it came from, is that often resistance is just a vision unheard. So it's something somebody wants that's not being expressed or not being heard. So how do you make space, you know, feedback loops? What kind of feedback loops are you creating? How do you help people voice what might be getting in the way of, of them wanting to engage in something. So I try to create different opportunities to, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to the seashores work, which is really just making visible the, the unconscious. Resistance is such a great source of information, mm -hmm. as, as you said. Worked with a client several years ago in a merger and acquisition, and uh, they actually started a newsletter, electronic newsletter called Heard It Through the Grapevine. Ah, I love it. <laughs> where all of the, the rumors, the myths, the assumptions about the initiative, the, the merger could be surfaced and addressed. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have learned along the change journey is all change is personal. Organizations only change when the people inside the organizations change. And the second piece of that is while you can walk into an organization and see cultural artifacts, the culture lives in the muscle memory and the neural networks of the employees. So that's, that's how I, what I believe to be true about change as a change mm -hmm. practitioner, that when you're looking to change an organization, you're really looking to change people's muscle memory and neural networks. And so we're actually in this series talking with Ochuko, whom you know, about the need to get personal as well as look from a systems perspective. How do you see the role of person in systems in change? Systems for me is about, you know, revealing the parts and helping the system understand the connectivity between everything. And so it goes counter to how a lot of organizations are built today, which is very siloed and believing that, you know, people can really run something in some kind of a vertical and that it won't affect or touch. Um, and I think for me personally, it's been a frustration in a lot of change initiatives where people felt left behind or unheard is that assumptions were made that somehow this happens here in this part 
you know, somewhere in the north and then the south will never know. Of course, it never happens like that. So, you know, when you talk about stakeholder mapping, there's an exercise that, you know, we all kind of get taught no matter what theory or model you're using. So even there, how do you do this so-called stakeholder mapping so that it's really about people and not boxes on some chart somewhere where people are going to manipulate the communications? (laughs) So for me, that exercise is very personal because when we talk about getting to know who these people are, I'm going to always push the envelope around your group is bigger than what you believe it to be, or the people impacted is larger than you believe it to be, which is not always easy because people want the quick and fast, right? So they want to believe that something is very well-contained and And that's where I think we we leave a lot of people out. So I'm one of those, I guess you could say, I I like to ruffle some feathers often in, in doing this work is I will keep asking, and who else do we need to speak to? And how else might this impact people? And sometimes they don't like that because they want the exercise to just be finished already. And so that's where even as a practitioner, you have to have sometimes a bit of a backbone when you believe in something because you want to hear the voices, you want to push for it to be more systemic than to be narrow in in thinking. So I will always empower others in the system to be seeking also, you know, who else do you need to speak to? So I'm not the one necessarily conducting interviews or one-on-ones, but from a strategic point of view, I definitely don't stop at a one layered kind of approach. I will keep digging and sometimes, you know, you'll call it sort of um, mapping the system with people. And this is another point where we had talked about you and I the other day is, do we name something or do we just do it and hope that the system changes without them even knowing what's being done to them? I'm not a believer in the just do it and hide it from people. Because I think that just we do harm in many ways, right? It's like, what is the purpose of us just doing something thinking that they don't need to know? One, we under assume people's capacity to learn or understand. Two, I think it becomes selfish, right? Because we just want to do it quickly. That doesn't serve people. And I think that there's another flaw there, which is the arrogance to think we have all the answers. Well, this is it. Absolutely. You know, when you're talking about really bringing people in, there's a patience factor in there too. And I know that we're very tempted to fall into the system's pattern, which is go fast, even if it's to jump off a cliff. (laughs) So I come from the adage of you need to go slow to go fast. And if it doesn't work, and if the client's not into that kind of strategy, then I feel they're not going to fit. When I think about that, what do you as a change practitioner believe to be true about change and about your role? So many change practitioners feel their role is to follow a process, follow a methodology, and make sure the deliverables get delivered on the due dates. Any thoughts about that? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Yeah, I'm personally not a one method, one tool kind of person. I never have been. I think it does damage because I think it takes away from the fact that organizations are living systems. They're not predictable. You know, most of the models we see, they're starting to evolve, are predictable. They assume predictability, right? They assume that things are neat and somehow boxed off. I think that as practitioners, we have to honor the system by one, understanding where the system's at, what it needs, coming in with understanding our own biases, like we were talking about earlier, 
And knowing that if something, if this organization is not ready for something, then you need to alter your method. Meaning that, you know, if some of the work, for example, of reinventing organizations by uh, Frederick Laloux, you know, he talks about bringing organizations to a place where they become self-managed and they're what they, he calls teal organizations. But, you know, even in Laloux's work, he'll tell you that you have to take the organization where it is and being a teal organization with all these self-managed teams, like just doesn't work for everybody. So if you come in with this ideology, everyone has to run a teal organization, you're not honoring where people are and what they need in that moment. So you got to sometimes toss the model to say that's not making sense right here, right now. And then I might have to blend things together, right? And there's a big debate about people who are purists, and we'll always take a model and it's 100%. And then there's me, I'm on more on the side of the world is not that clean, you know, for you to be a purist in any one methodology, I believe is, is erroneous. So yeah, I think the greatest gift as practitioners is our capacity to see systems, to understand what the system needs, and then for us to adapt to them, not them to adapt to our model or our philosophy. The problem is we get caught in wanting to please organizations, meaning that they'll ask you, oh, do you use whatever, ProSci, you know, one of the ones that's been most commercialized, and then they want to impose, for example, that the person that they hire or bring on use this methodology. So I think there's, there's a lot of things that are at play there. And I get it that as practitioners, sometimes we feel that to get the work, we have to toe certain lines. I share your bias. Um, I, I tell people often that I have been in one way or another, a change practitioner for over five decades. And I do not have the certifications that would allow me to get many change management opportunities. Imagine. I'm curious, what role does intuition play for you as a change practitioner? I'm huge on intuition or gut, or some people call it soul. And I guess it depends what you want to call it. But I have always trusted my gut. Well, it's not true. I've always known my gut is speaking to me. Have I always trusted it? Not necessarily. I've had a couple of gotchas in my life, but I'm so intuitive that sometimes before there's any true data, I just feel or know something. Now that's difficult because we tend to be programmed to be very dogmatic and pragmatic and data-driven. So when someone asks you based on what, or what's the proof, and I say, my God, um, it doesn't always fly. So I've had to kind of work to take my intuition and turn it into something a little bit more tangible, maybe for people to understand, which doesn't always work out because I can't even name it. It's amazing. Like even now people who know me very closely, whether it's, you know, family or colleagues or my business partner, my business partner will say to me, if your gut is telling you, like she knows it now, I've rarely been wrong. Like if it's a bad mandate, uh, something's fishy or, or something, I just know it. I am just starting to do some research into the neuroscience of intuition, and it's fascinating. First of all, it's our subconscious recognizing patterns before we do. That's a good way to put it, yes. But when you talk about the gut, this I've done a lot more work on. There actually is a fully functioning brain, brain. in our guts. 
Some neuroscientists will call it a neural network or a neural cluster, but it has motor neurons. It has sensory neurons. It collects data, stores data, retrieves data, analyzes data. It has as many neurons, approximately as many neurons as a cat's brain. So listening to our gut is not some superstitious thing. There is real science behind it. And we've been trained to not listen to it, right? We've been told that that's silly or crazy. You need to have a business case. (laughs) You can't just come in and say, you know, my gut tells me it's a good idea. You got to come in somehow with what the data, the data. Yeah. 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 So it'd be wonderful to be able to say, well, there is data behind the gut and, and that intuition. And yeah, so I like that. I, I actually, Carolyn, do bring the neuroscience because the third brain mm-hmm. is the cardiac brain, the heart brain. You know, our head is good for problem solving, for data and analysis, all that kind of stuff. The cardiac brain is the seat of passion, compassion, and values. You know, when executives say, I want to make a rational decision. I don't want to let emotion in. They're shutting off a piece of their intelligence. The enteric brain, the uh, gut brain, is the seat of courage, self-defense, self-protection, and who we are at our core. Which at the end of the day, even if people think they're cut off from it, I don't know if you're unconsciously cut off from it because you still do make decisions from it. You just have rationalized it somehow, right? But Right, right. I think, and maybe I'm wrong, that if you were really cut off from that piece of you, there would be almost like some psychological disorder where you literally have somehow, you know, created some disconnection. And there are disorders, right, where where people do disassociate. But right. I mean, that we're talking a severe thing on, on the spectrum. But I think at some level, we all are operating there, we just have to be more able to name it and be okay with it. And, and to say it's, it's valid, you know, I don't need to rationalize everything in that sense in the way we've been trained. Oh, the day that comes, Brian, it'll be <laughs> a beautiful day, beautiful day. Yeah. Anything else around who you are and how you show up as a change practitioner that you want to share with our listeners? Well, for me, like I said, you know, I, I try to bring as much authenticity and I cannot ask others to do something I'm not prepared to do, whether that's reveal hopes and fears, really think about what it is that's driving. So, you know, if nothing else, I hope I live by authenticity and that when I practice, I bring in my whole self in the same way I ask others to bring in their whole selves. And this is something that I think has to be encouraged. Again, it's my bias of change practitioners. I've seen way too many people who literally would say it doesn't matter what I think or what I feel. And I find that that's doing a disservice when you're working with humans because we're humans. So we, we need to be able to connect to that part for us for others in honor of us and in honor of others. And I hope that I live that like any human, there's days where maybe I'm not showing up as as well as I'd like to, or I didn't show up as authentically, but that's what I'm striving for. I can't ask others to do something I'm not prepared to do. Carolyn, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, look forward to further conversations. We hope you've enjoyed this from the field episode of the Change Management Review Podcast with Brian Gorman. 
Managing Editor of the Change Management Review, and Caroline Samley. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and like us on LinkedIn.